The comprehensive timeline reinforces and reveals inconsistencies in Murdoch's statements to authorities. And then a possible new motive has emerged. And it says that in May of 2021, Maggie, his wife, or now deceased wife, was concerned about drug use, which he has admitted to, and researching pills online after finding several bags of pills in Murdaugh's computer bag. And so people are thinking, or at least the prosecution is, is calling this a potential motive because they're calling out his drug use and abuse. And a lot of people are talking about this case and a lot of the things that come up with this is intergenerational trauma. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Noreen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The 12-year-old son finally took the stand. As I heard a scream, I heard a thud. It was about this loud. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself, and it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Hey, movers. Welcome back to another episode of Moving Past Murder. I'm your host, Collier Landry, and what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. It's Friday, February 17th, and I've had a slew of technical problems today with the podcast, <laughs> but I've got everything solved, which is why you're listening to it now. So I apologize uh, for the delay, but uh, we're back in full steam. Uh, it has been an interesting week. Look, we've had another national holiday, of course. We have had a new Super Bowl champion has been crowned. Uh, congratulations to the Kansas City Chiefs, for those of you that are football fans, and to those of you that are Chiefs fans. Um, and, uh, yeah, today we had an interesting, uh, a couple of interesting things in the true crime world where the prosecution decided to rest its case against Alex Murdoch. And I've been talking a little bit about that trial the last couple of weeks, and I want to get into it a little bit more. Uh, but first I want to, um, talk about something that I, I just kind of stumbled upon this morning and, um, there's this case, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it was like a love triangle sort of murder thing in um, Bismarck, North Dakota. And it was this woman named Sik uh, Nikki Sue Ensel. And so she had a sentencing or a pre-sentencing hearing today. And what I thought was really interesting about this is I had kind of touched upon this case, I think like over a year ago. I don't really know a lot about it. And like I said, as you guys know, I usually don't follow true crime, but if something speaks to me, I kind of go, oh, I'm interested in this. So what was happening is, is this popped up and this was like a pre-sentencing hearing. Her official sentencing hearing is going to be on March the 6th, just for you guys that are curious. And so a little bit of background. So she and her lover, Earl Howard, uh, murdered her husband, Chad Ensel, in around, I believe, December of 2019. And they tried to cover it up as a suicide. Now, Earl Howard last year, last February, pleaded uh, guilty to... Um, he didn't plead guilty to murder. In fact, neither one of them had been convicted for murder because they couldn't find a way that the weapon was used. There's obviously some technicality. So they were, you know, attempted murder and things of that nature. Those are the sort of charges that were brought in, but they obviously killed the guy. Um, but it's a, it's a whole thing. And of course, you know, when lawyers get involved and it's always something that crosses my mind because I think back to my father's trial and how things could have gone much differently. Um, and probably would have if it had taken place nowadays with all the lawyers and just, I mean, there's so much that's changed. I think the, really the start of that was like when I was a kid was the OJ Simpson trial when they really, obviously you saw all this legal maneuvering in a murder trial and it was pretty crazy. And, um, so yeah, so anyways, nobody was actually quote unquote convicted for murder. They were convicted on attempted murder, suspicion, misuse of a firearm, things of that nature. Right. So what I thought was interesting and, and also really heartbreaking is Chad Etzel, uh, Ensel's mother and sister both came to the stand to give their victim impact statements. And apparently one of the things that was brought up, you know, the mother's crying and she, you know, she maybe was up there for less than a minute, not even probably 30 seconds, if that. She's obviously just heartbroken. 
And the sister took the stand, uh, Lori Kraus, uh, who was Chad Ensel's sister. And she began to explain, you know, she was saying how insidious it was for Lori Kraus, or sorry, she was saying how insidious it was for Nikki to be with their family after the apparent quote suicide and how she tried to manipulate the whole family into believing the story and just how insidious that is and how, and what she put is she said, we are not victims. We are a network of broken survivors. And I thought that was really, really poignant. And I mean, just what a great way to describe it because I think when you're trying to consistently find closure in these things or when you've been manipulated and gaslighted, like she obviously was in her family, you know, you don't know which way is up and, and all of these things, nothing makes sense. And you're like, am I going crazy? And then you find out the truth and, and she sums it up with a very, with a really powerful statement. She says, everyone knows the world is a much better place without you. Um, referring to this woman who, you know, carried out this murder, this just horrific crime against her brother. And it's very, very unfortunate. Uh, but her sentencing will be Nikki Sue Ensel's sentencing will be on March the 6th, 2023. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard <laughs> there in little Hollywood news, there is, well, obviously we have the, we're right in the middle of award season. Oscars are coming up around the corner. We just had the Grammys a couple weekends ago. So it's a big season, but there's a new book that came out about Sumner Redstone. Now, for those of you that don't know who Sumner Redstone is or was, he was the media mogul that ran Paramount Pictures, CBS, Viacom, at all, MTV, all these things. He was the big boss. I don't remember how long he was in charge there. He ran the parent company. I believe Les Moonves was underneath him. I'm not exactly sure how all that worked, uh, what that sort of hierarchy was, but that was what this new book is about called Unscripted, The Epic Battle for a Media Empire. I was listening about it the other day and it, it talks about his sort of very checkered past with, um, he was quite the woman, he was quite the ladies man, if you will. Sumner Redstone, I mean, he passed away when he was like 90. And he had two girlfriends, or and one was a fiance or something. Of course, some weird Hollywood love triangle. And these women tried to, or successfully did, and then uh, the money was recuperated, but bilked him each out of like 70 or $75 million, like 150 million he gave these women. And The Sun had done an article recently, a couple of days ago, talking about when he met them through this like $120,000 a year website that you, that you, it's a dating website. It's very expensive. And his grandson had signed him up for it. But previously her, her lover had died during a Coke fueled, uh, sexual, uh, situation <laughs> and during Coke fueled sex is what the headline says. And the sort of scandal that surrounds her, that she was potentially questioned in the murder. It could have been a murder. I don't know, just more Hollywood silliness. And it just sort of goes to show all of these, just when you, you kind of reap what you sow. <laughs> it is one of those things. And that's what today's episode is going to get into in a little bit. But so today, the trial of Alex Murdaugh, the prosecution rested its case after four weeks, 20 days of giving testimony and evidence. And here are some highlights from the last day of the prosecution's time on uh, in court. So the developments were that there was a vehicle timeline that reveals that Murdaugh drove at high rates of speed from and then back to the crime scene. The comprehensive timeline reinforces and reveals inconsistencies in Murdaugh's statements to authorities. And then a possible new motive has emerged. And it says that in May of 2021, Maggie, his wife or now deceased wife, was concerned about drug use, which he has admitted to, and researching pills online after finding several bags of pills in Murdaugh's computer bag. <laughs> and so people are thinking, or at least the prosecution is, is calling this a potential motive because they're calling out his drug use and abuse. And a lot of people are talking about this case. And a lot of the things that come up with this is intergenerational trauma. So as soon as the state rested its case, the defense immediately moved for 
a directed verdict, <laughs> which is a motion that basically says they want the case dismissed. And of course, the judge is like, that's nonsense. And technically, a directed verdict is a ruling that's entered by a trial judge after determining that there is no legally sufficient evidentiary basis for a reasonable jury to reach a different conclusion. Uh, but obviously, <laughs> the judge dismissed that because there seems to be quite a lot of evidence <laughs> as presented in today's uh, final final day of the prosecution's case. There's a lot of talk about the sort of history of the Murdoch's and the history of shame and potential intergenerational trauma. And this dates back to the, you know, 1910 when Randolph Murdoch Sr. or the first, uh, when he founded the family's law firm, which I find really ironic, but you guys might not. It's P-M-P-E-D, which is literally one vowel away from the word pimped. And considering they built tens of dozens of families out of their settlement funds uh, for cases that they were representing them on, I think pimped is probably a good, I'm gonna call it pimped. I, th I think it makes a lot of sense in this situation. But no, in all seriousness, so this firm was founded by Randolph Murdoch Sr. And he was killed in a, tr quote, train accident in 1940. Now, before that, he had founded the firm in 1920. He bought, I'm sorry, 1910. He had bought a newspaper, I think, in 1920, which was obviously to serve an arm of, of advertising his legal for, firm uh, because he started it just by himself. But then, uh, you know, he, he got into running for solicitor and that, that uh, was created in their county. And uh, that's when they started taking hold of power. But mysteriously, he now mysteriously, if you will, uh, he was killed in a train accident wherein his car was on the train tracks. And this was in 1940. And one of the things that has been brought to light over the sort of the whole Murdoch or ordeal, the saga, it just doesn't, it's amazing fodder for anyone talking about it. But one of the things that is brought up is that it may have potentially been something that looked like a suicide, which is interesting because for 50 plus years, this family got significant settlements, like tens of millions of dollars from the CXX railroad. And the last payment that they received was between 1995 or 96 and 2002, when CXX paid them $8.8 .8 million to the, P, to the pimped firm. And a lot of people are saying that that is exactly how the Murdochs got all their money and got all their power. Now, it's interesting to think about this because in families that have long-standing generational ties, meaning, you know, m many generations in the same spot, right? hundred plus years of history in one location in a city, town, what have you, in a county in South, was it South Carolina, North Carolina. What's interesting is you begin to think about things like intergenerational trauma. So let's say that this Randolph Murdoch, the, the, the first or Murdoch, uh, what if he potentially did commit suicide and it has been something that the family has been covered up and often in families where there's a massive amount of power, massive amount of wealth, a massive amount of history and pride or hubris in this case, you know, these people as been, as has been well-documented recently, the Murdaws, you know, operated under this uh, guise of that they were above the law. And I think their behavior is indicative of that. But when you think about the generational trauma and shame from, let's say there was mental illness in the family, and let's say he did kill himself, because that's what everyone is, is saying. They have essentially profited massively off not only their own personal trauma, or manufactured trauma, but also the trauma of other people in their law firm that they represented that now they've stolen all this money from, right? That Alex Murdaugh is gonna be <laughs> tried for that later on down the road after the murder trial. And, it, and, and usually in, in, in families like this, there carries a lot of shame. And for me, when I think about shame, shame becomes the most, it's most insidious when it leads to suppressed emotions. And when you start to suppress things and you're not, you're not talking about emotions, you're not discussing things openly in the family. I, I mean, 
many people have rules in their family like we don't talk about that we don't talk. my own family didn't talk about stuff that's why i'm so estranged from all of them <laughs> there was so many secrets that i didn't know about as a child that i came to find out in adulthood which still has led to this fracture in my in my family's relationships so there's so much and really when you think about it again when you look at like epigenetics when you think about like holocaust survivors and they talk about how trauma traumatic events are passed down through generations what really breaks those sort of bonds what really breaks those sort of chains in this gen intergenerational trauma which obviously leads to more insidious and and just nefarious and and downright illegal <laughs> behavior um it's a really interesting thing about it. and i think it really is properly summed up in um maggie murdoch's so that that would be alex murdoch's wife who was who was found murdered and her sister, Marion, testified on the witness stand, and she said something that was really interesting. She testified that Alex had told her that he wants to clear, after the murders, that he wants to clear Paul's name, which is his younger son, who is also one of the murder victims. But Paul was implicated in this boating accident, which unfortunately led to the death of Mallory Beach. And it's covered, as I've talked about a couple of weeks ago in that documentary, Low Country, the Murdoch Dynasty or Murdoch Dynasty. And it's interesting because that was his motive. His number one goal was to clear Paul's name in regards to the boating accident, which the, the son was going to be brought up on charges of some sort for. Not, let me find out who killed my wife and my son. And that's what this, that's what Maggie's sister said on the witness stand. And I mean, I don't know what a smoking gun looks like really, but it's, it's interesting how sometimes and my own father did this, obviously psychopaths and sociopaths and narcissists and, and just people who think this way, they really tip their hand. <laughs> and they because they think they're smarter than everyone and to say something like that is like where are your priorities at where are your priorities at why are you concerned about find out who killed your wife and your son it's an interesting thing it'll be interesting to see how this case continues to pl uh, play out now that the defense which is a very high powered and very long time members uh, family friends fam friends of the family sort of so I'm going to call it the Murdaugh legal cabal. <laughs> That's what this is. It'll be interesting to see how they play out their whole scenario. So on that note, I want to sort of bring back an old episode that I did 40 episodes ago, where I took a look at the Chris Watts case in Colorado because I had seen the documentary and uh, a friend of mine recommended it to me. It's called American... Uh, American Murder, The Neighbor Next Door, I believe it came out in like 2017, 2018, 20, something like that. 2019, maybe. I talk about it in this episode. And uh, I was really fascinated with his behavior. And I'm also fascinated with Alex Murnau's behavior because it's so similar to my father's. And again, like this, when he says he he's trying to clear the name rather than find out who murdered his wife, that just shows a lot of... Like, why is there no concern about that? And, you know, my father's behavior when my mother went missing was like, we're not calling the police. We're not calling the FBI as I've, I've shared in past episodes. It was, he didn't do anything. <laughs> well, I mean, he did do something, but he was, you know, burying her body in another state and covering his tracks or so he thought. And it's interesting that where their priorities go, where they don't even feign concern. Now you have this, this Nikki Sue Ensel, who I guess was feigning concern with the family, but obviously she was responsible for her husband's death. But it's interesting where they just, the, the psychopaths, the narcissists, they tip their hand. And this episode was a really great examination comparing Chris Watts with my father. So anyways, I hope you all enjoyed this episode of my side-by-side -side between Chris Watts and my father, Dr. Jack Boyle. And that brings me to today's episode about Chris Watts and the murder of his wife, Shanann Watts, 
and their two children. I watched this documentary because my friend asked me multiple times. He's like, you got to watch this. You got to watch this. And I literally texted him after I saw it because I couldn't sleep the rest of the night. Really? I try not to watch these things at night anyways, but sometimes you don't have a choice, but man, there are so many things that are just really hard to swallow or really hard to fathom in this case. But I think for me, the thing that initially just caught me was the similarities between Chris Watts and my father. And when I think about what happened, look, in the Chris Watts case, he he had a mistress, as did my father. Um, it was a little different, um, but it's there were just so many parallels. So that's what I'm going to get into today's episode about. So let's get into it. So in this documentary, it's called American Murder, The Family Next Door, not The Neighbor Next Door. Sorry about that. Um, so in this documentary, The uh, American Murder, the family next door, um, the director, Jenny Popplewell, uh, explores the murder of Shanann Watts and her two daughters by Christopher Watts. And this is a very interesting documentary to me. Now, now as a filmmaker, this is very interesting to me because the whole documentary is all actually pretty much all footage. Yeah, it's actually all footage from social media because Shanann had lupus, I believe, uh, so which is an autoimmune disease for those of you that aren't aware. Um, so she was suffering from lupus and she also had, um, you know, had a very uh, big social media presence because of that. And she was talking to people about lupus and sharing her story to help others who have gone through similar circumstances. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? help them sort of deal with and reconcile with what they're, what they're going through with this physical, um, this physical ailment, right? The entire documentary is made up of all news footage, her footage from social media and, and then police body camera footage and some drone stuff. It's look, man, it is a really, really heavy film <laughs> and it's a heavy case. I remember it because it took place in Frederick, Colorado. That's the only thing I remembered. But I kind of put stuff like this out of my mind and it happened in 2018 and I was releasing a murder in Mansfield and I was traveling around. So I wasn't paying attention to a lot of this stuff. The thing that strikes me the most is when my friend said, you need to watch this. He, he was very adamant. He wanted to know, do I draw any parallels? And oh my God, do I draw so many parallels between my father and Chris Watts? So much so that I have placed footage for us to listen to and go over of my father and of Chris Watts side by side. So we can sort of examine these sociopaths really is what they are. Um, Chris, as you, if you don't know, in the case, he murdered his whole family. He had a girlfriend that he wanted to start a new life with. And he even talks about how um, I've watched some other things about this case leading up to this episode. He'll talk about how he was very excited to start a new life after he murdered his family. I mean, it's nuts. It, it's, it's, it's so disturbing. Um, it's crazy, but I want to play a couple of things, uh, three takes side by side, discuss them with you guys, because this is my take on Chris Watts and his, um, you know, what I perceive to be his extreme sociopathy, uh, which is very unfortunate because people, you know, innocent people died and that sucks. Let's listen to this i want them wherever they're at like i have no inclination to where they're at right now and it's just like there's it's like it's vanished like she's not like when i got home yesterday it was like a ghost town like she wasn't here kids weren't here i have no idea like where they went so first off this is an interview with chris which took place a day after his wife disappeared so essentially what happened is the um the the family disappeared she was supposed to, she the shanann was supposed to go to like a, a doctor's appointment she didn't show up for the doctor's appointment the best friend called they couldn't find her the whole family was gone he was at work he comes home there's body camera footage of him like then he finds her phone then he's like everything's gone everything's gone and so this is the local news station talking to him basically and he's saying you know i just want her back or i don't know what happened and it's just, it just it gets creepier and it doesn't, it's just earth shattering. I don't feel like this is even real right now. It's like a nightmare that I just can't wake up from. 
well, okay, it's a nightmare he can't wake up from. Well, um, hey, buddy, you caused the nightmare. So, yeah. Like I said, it's very disturbing. So he goes on. Yeah, I had the kids over the weekend. Did you see your wife when she got home? Uh, she got home really late, about 2 a.m. from the airport. So apparently what happened is, is uh, Shanann had gone on a business trip to like Arizona or something. They live in Colorado um, for a business that she was doing. She was coming back and then this was the, the reporter asking him, when was the last time you saw your wife? What's interesting is now I have my father on the witness stand talking about the last time he, quote, saw my mother. Did you have occasion to see, talk to Noreen early morning of December 31st of 1989? Yes, I was on the sofa uh, in the family room, and Noreen came down and woke me up. Um, she started uh, hollering, uh, Jack, 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 and uh, uh, threw credit cards at me. First of all, for those of you that don't know my mother, my mother, my mother would have never thrown credit cards at my father. She never would. <laughs> she never would have let them leave her hands. That's the first thing. If she was leaving, did she leave the house then? Mm -hmm. Yes, she did. So I walked down the driveway. I ran back to the uh, uh, table that sits there in the family room, put my glasses on and ran back again to see where she was going. What did you see? Uh, by the time I got there, I saw Noreen get into a car at the edge of the driveway. Left in that car? Left in that car. So here is my father uh, explaining how, what the last time, the last interaction he had with my mother was. She got in a... They got into a fight. She threw credit cards at him. Now, this is at his trial, mind you. So if you're listening, this is at my father's murder trial. This is approximately January, or I'm sorry, June 23rd, 1990. Um, he decided to take the witness stand because, <laughs> and they always say that you shouldn't take the witness stand in your own defense, but because he's a narcissist and a sociopath and he thought everyone would believe him and he was smarter than everyone else. He took the witness stand to say all this, which is this whole situation of this fight that happened and all this. Now, this was the last interaction that he had with her. So I'm going to back up just a little bit and then I'm going to go back to Chris Watts. So the first thing is, is a lot of people ask me when they see the movie, A Murder in Mansfield, which we're going to play some more of, 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 of the scene with my father and I in prison. He said she came at him with a knife and this, that, and the other. Well, has he been saying that the whole time? No, this is the court testimony. This is him at the witness stand talking about the last time he saw my mother. There's no knife. There's no engagement. There's no, he pushed her. There's none of that. So for those of you that have seen the film or that are wondering when he's talking about the knife thing, I take you back to his trial when he's literally saying the last interaction I had with her, she threw credit cards at me and was yelling at me and then, or hollering as he puts it, and then got in a car, he had to get his glasses. Then he saw her get into the car at the end of the driveway. Our driveway was probably um, maybe 50 yards long in the dead of winter, mind you. This is January, this would have been January, I'm sorry, December 31st, 1989. So, you know, my mom just trotted out to the car and got in. <laughs> they didn't even come up to the house. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. Obviously he's lying because he murdered her. Um, but, uh, this is, this is the sociopath at work. So you have Chris Watts literally saying to a reporter, you know, this is what, this is what happened. And he's spinning his web. He's spinning his, his tail of, you know, I just want her back in the nightmare. And, uh, you know, I give anything to have him back. In fact, let's go to my next little part. So this is again, the same interview. This is the day after he has murdered his entire family and he's talking to the news media. Let's check it out. I want them here. Like this house is not the same. I mean, I, last night was traumatic. Last night was, I, I can't really stay in this house again, like with nobody here. Poor guy cannot stay in his house with nobody here after he killed them all. This, this doesn't seem real at all. It just seems like I'm, I'm living in a nightmare and I can't get out of it. Well, I mean, he is right. He is living in a nightmare that he cannot get out of because he committed this heinous atrocity to his own family. Um, but this is something. So our last episode, which uh, aired on May 18th, was when I talked to Do Dr. Dennis Marikis. We discussed 
narcissism, sociopathy. We discussed how all of that has related uh, to my father in my film, A Murder in Mansfield. And, um, you know, there is a very, uh, there is a very odd sort of phenomena that happens with these people. And that is called the victim narcissist. And this guy, Chris Watts, is trying to say, is trying to turn us, draw us in as he's trying to draw the reporters in to tell his tale of uh, whatever bullshit he's shilling here, that he misses his family that he killed. And it's, it's victim narcissism. So he, what he's doing is he's, he's trying to, he's trying to get your sympathy. Like, Oh, poor dad doesn't have his wife. Doesn't have his, this, that. That's what he's doing. So now I'm going to play a clip from a murder in Mansfield where I confront my father. I read him a letter that he had sent back to me when I was, uh, 13 years old. It was in 1993. And I had asked him in this letter and I read this letter to him in the film, but in this particular letter, I asked him if he could just please confess to murdering my mother so I can move on with my life. So my family can move on with my life. So his girlfriend, Sherry at the time could move on with his, with her, with her life, uh, for my sister, my, my half sister that was born 12 days before he was arrested. She can move on all that. We could all have this peace. Could you please just grant us that this peace? That's what I asked him. And I read him this letter in the film because he sent this letter back to me and wrote on the envelope, refuse. He read it, put it back in the envelope, wrote refuse, sent it back to me. And I always kept it like I kept, I have, like I said, 500 of his letters sitting here underneath my desk. And, um, you know, I read these on the program, but this is a very key letter that I read to him in prison. And this is his take on this. Again, the victim narcissist. Let's check it out. I can't give you an explanation why I refused that in 1993, but I think it's fair to say I was angry about a lot of things. He was angry. I was in a spot, probably broken as I could possibly be, low as I could possibly be, uh, away from family and friends. Away from family and friends in a situation that you created. Uh, significant enough that uh, I had considered killing myself. I had considered suicide. Now, <laughs> when I heard that, when he was telling me that in the film, in the room, as it's laying out, I was like, oh my God. I'm a very forgiving person. I have forgiven my father. I move because it's, as I've explained before, as I will continue to explain, forgiveness is is about you, not about them. You're not giving up any power by moving on from that. I mean, this program is called moving past murder for a reason. And it's dealing with these challenging circumstances that you are faced in, in, you know, these seemingly insurmountable odds and, and a way to get past them. And, you know, part of that is to sort of take yourself out of it and go, you're not giving anything up. It's not about them. <laughs> it's about you and you leading. And, and, and many of you have reached out. Uh, acknowledging this and, and finding the same, you know, peace in your own lives by doing just that. Right. Um, so I commend you guys for that. I'm glad that I can lead by example, but again, part of me, my empathetic self was like, Oh my dad, my, you know, I, I felt bad at that moment of like, Oh, uh, wow. You thought about killing yourself. What if that had happened? And then part of me was like, are you kidding me? Like, like you thought about killing yourself. What about your son that thought about killing himself? You know, um, uh, it was literally going, I have no mother, no father, no home, no dog, no this, no that. my whole way of life is uprooted. How about that? Or how about your family? How about the girl? How about all these people? Right? Again, it's the victim narcissist because it's all about them. And that's why I, you know, I'm not here to give you the play by play on the Chris Watts case but I am pointing out these things that I find very similar to my father's case where I go, Oh, this is like, this is some hard to swallow. Um, because these people do this. So he's trying to, you know, Chris Watts is trying to get the media to feel sorry for him. And he's trying to obviously spin this web of what happened to his wife. I think, you know, it only took like, this was like a pretty, pretty like, well, yeah, this is what happened. I mean, there's a scene in the film and it's on the police officer's body camera footage because what happens is 
the hysterical were not hysterical. She wasn't hysterical in the film, but she was very concerned. She didn't get a phone call from her friend and they had, they had traveled the night before um, in from Arizona. She had gotten in late. She was supposed to go to her doctor's appointment because she had lupus. So she needed to have a routine health checkups and her friend was concerned about her. Oh, I'm sorry. Also, she was pregnant. What I find just, just so reprehensible about all of that is they are, are is, you know, so he, he thought he could just get away with this. And then the friend comes to the house, the friend can't get in. Then she calls the cops. The cops are like, well, we can't go in until he arrives. So he arrives. And then the neighbor has like a, has a good neighbor. You know, I have cameras at my house and I've had neighbors say, oh, can you look at your camera? Cause somebody stole my bicycle or something, you know, as a good neighbor, they had a camera and they were showing his truck. And you know, this guy is like freaking out in his head. Like, oh my God, here we are with the cops. It's on the body camera footage. We're watching his television of his CCTV and it shows my truck and you don't see anything. You don't see him like taking bodies out or anything to the truck. So Chris leaves. This is the first time the police come to the house. As soon as he leaves, neighbor looks at the cop literally on the body camera footage. He goes, he's acting really funny. Like he's acting really strange. I mean, this guy's got it written all over his face, which means that like at that point, I mean, I think if you're a reasonable or a rational person, well, first of all, if you're a reasonable, rational person, you do not do something like this. That's the first thing. But the second thing is you think that you're probably caught, but oh no, oh no, oh no. It Of course, it wouldn't be that easy. Of course, he wouldn't have that much dignity and respect for his slain wife, children, her family, the community that's all rallied around concerned about his missing wife and children, the police officers, all of these people. Of course he can't do that. Of course he can't say, I mean, just like my father, it's a missing person's case. And without his son screaming to hold that my mother was murdered, nobody listens, right? Here we have the same thing. Chris Watts, he is literally, so the police, the police bring him to the police station and they say, we want you to take a lie detector test. And this woman's administering the lie detector test. And I would love to talk to her. I'm just curious what was going through her head. Cause she, everyone knows that this guy did something. They don't know what he did or what the extent was, but you know, something happened, right? So she gives him this lie detector test, which he fails miserably because he's lying. You know, what, do you know what happened to her? Did you cause anything to make her disappear? Like they're asking all these, you know, provocative questions and, you know, he's being very prevaricative in it and, you know, and, oh, I don't know this and that. And he doubles down on it, which is the crazy thing. She comes into the room. She's like, you already know that you failed the lie detector test. So now let's get in, let's get real. <laughs> let's get real, dude about what really happened. Why don't you tell us what happened so we can wrap this up? And he's still saying like, uh, I don't, I, I don't know why I failed the lie. He's still trying to perpetrate the lie because he's convincing himself. Right. And this is what I want to talk about because this is really crazy. So let's listen. We know that something happened to all three of us, but I want to know did something happened to these baby girls first that you had to take into your own hands and deal with. You had to clean it up for Shanann. If you guys didn't quite understand that. So basically is the investigator, the female investigator that administered the lie detector test is saying to him, Hey, um, we know that something happened. This is the amazing thing to me about people that perpetrate these crimes. These investigators, these police officers deal with people all day, every day. Some of them are obviously better than others, but this is an investigator. I believe this is like the, the Colorado Bureau of investigation, which is like right below the FBI. So these people have a little bit of a clue, know how to profile people. This guy ain't throwing them anything new that they've never seen before. Like they know, they already know. They're just like, please buddy, just make it, make it easy on us. But what she does is she gives him the out. So she says, what I want to know is what happened first. And what she's insinuating is, did Shanann, the mother kill the kids? And then you killed her in retaliation, which we know, by the way, is not the case. But again, victim narcissist here, he latches on to this idea and he's like, oh, okay. And later, according to court documents, the reason why he latched onto this story is because the female investigator brought it up to him or investigators brought up that, oh, the wife could have 
it could have killed the kids. So therefore you took, you know, cowboy justice and, you know, killed your wife because she killed your kids. There's so many things wrong with this. First of all, that he's, and, and we're going to listen to the next part because what they do is they brought his dad. So he lives in Colorado. His dad, he's from like North Carolina or South Carolina. His dad flies out obviously as a good father. And I have to say they're being very cool when you're watching them. Like they're not like pounding that. It's not like a scene out of like CSI or something or they're grabbing them. Okay. No, it's not that they're very calm and collected. And obviously because they knew they had him, like I said, dead to rights. But so they bring his dad in and they, you know, they're, so his dad sits down with him and this is what this guy says. Well, I don't want to protect her. She hurt him. So he initially says in the beginning, I don't want to protect her, meaning that he's not going to protect her anymore because she perpetrated killing the kids. And then the dad's like, so she hurt them. And he says, yeah. And then he whispers as if they're not like taping in the room. And then I killed her. This is where it goes like well beyond the pale, right? This is a guy who not only has committed this heinous act, but he is doubled down on this lie that the investigators like put in his brain. Like, Oh yeah, no, that makes total sense. Like, Oh yeah. And I can remember when I was a kid, when my mother went missing, I said, where's my mother? I'm talking to my father. And we did this brainstorm session. And I, I said something where my mom wanted to always go to Toronto and uh, which is ironic because uh, my film premiered at the uh, 2018 Hot Docs Film Festival. I actually have a tattoo from the film festival. It's logo right here that I got while I was up there. It was the 25th year of the festival. It was really amazing. Um, and my mother's place that she wanted to take me when I was a kid was always Toronto. So, you know, it was a cool little symbiotic thing that happened anyways um, to be able to present the film there. And it was really well received. It's such a great festival. Hot Docs, you were amazing. Thank you. Um, anyways, we had this brainstorm session and my dad was like, oh yeah, well maybe mommy, yeah, she could have gone to, to Toronto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good, good idea. So he started like latching on and I call this like the grabbing at straws sort of defense, right? They, they, they're trying to, they're like, oh, that's a great idea. Oh yeah. That's what happened because they already know. And they're also so wrapped up in their own, um, deceit of themselves and they're believing the story and they're selling that, that narrative to you, hoping that you'll buy it as the investigator, as the court or whatever. And they're so like, they're so convincing, which is just scary. We're going to listen to this expert excerpt and just see again, a similarity with a son confessing to his father, right? Some bullshit. And now a father confessing to his son. Sumble. I killed, killed her. her by accident. Uh, yeah, by accident. I don't believe you. It doesn't make any sense. You know, Elizabeth gave a statement that Guga's daddy came in and hit mommy and wrapped her up like a snowman and showed the investigators how they wrapped her, how the body was wrapped so, up. So um, what I'm referring to there is my, uh, my, my adopted sister who was adopted from Taiwan six months before my mother was killed, used to leave her bed in the middle of the night and go into my mother's room and sleep in her bed. So she had explained, Guga, by the way, means brother in, um, in Chinese, in Mandarin Chinese. So that's why I say Guga. So she used to call me Guga as uh, when she was little, right? Uh, I mean, I haven't seen her in 30 years or whatever, but... Anyways, it's an unfortunate consequence of all of this <laughs> um, is the family gets destroyed. Um, but no, but in all seriousness, so that's what Guga means. So she had told Dave Messmore, you know, wrapped up like a snowman, showed this, and that was like a huge thing. Now, obviously, she was three years old and they weren't going to have her testify. Um, but that was something that was like, oh, for me, it's less about like what she says and what she saw than what she saw which this still haunts me to this day. Hey, um, you know, Elizabeth or now Caitlin, if you're watching this, this bothers me every single day. And I hope that you're okay. Like straight up all just, if you are listening to this, I just pray that you're okay. You don't ever have to talk to me again. I just pray that you're okay. Okay. Uh, or ever see me again. I don't, I, I don't care. I just want to know you're all right. That's it because this is really hard. And, um, 
and I know you were there and it it makes me really sad that that you witnessed this um you didn't deserve that none of us deserve this anyways but okay anyways um, I digress uh again so I'm trying to present this to my father and and here we go with more of the the uh the story she was in the bed so again do you really want to tell me what happened i've told you what happened collier i did not kill mommy i did not kill my wife in the bedroom it was downstairs when i pushed her because i really believe she was coming to kill me now, let's just unpack all of that. So again, here's a narrative that he latches onto. Um, again, this denial, but there's something that's really key, and I didn't even think about this earlier, but this is something that, there's a moment in the film when I'm talking about, like I had seen the case file of my mother's body, and I talk about the skull being crushed. I don't know if it was or not. I can't really remember at the time, but I know that I said that because it was a very dramatic thing. So one of the things that I have noticed with my father and people like him is that what they do is they latch onto like the tiniest detail, right? And if they can prove, you know, it was uh, Professor Professor Green in the uh, in the billiards room with the candlestick at at the stroke of midnight. Nope. It wasn't the stroke of midnight. It was 1 a.m. So you got the time wrong. So it wasn't Professor Green with the candlestick in the billiard room. You know what I mean? They think that like if you get one minor detail wrong, then therefore they're innocent or their, their story somehow holds water. It's very odd. Um, so again, he's trying to say, well, you know, I didn't kill her. I didn't kill her upstairs in the bedroom. But downstairs when she came in, I thought she was coming to kill me. So why don't you take me to the trial? <laughs> and he's saying, essentially. What did you see? Uh, by the time I got there, I saw Noreen get into a car at the edge of the driveway. Left in that car? Left in that car. So again, the whole thing and the whole reason why I play this is because there is, you know, <laughs> they latch on to these things and they're just trying to sell it. But again, you know, there's my father 26 years later telling me a whole different story because he's had 26 years to sort of figure it out. So when I look at this Chris Watts case, this is the thing that really hits me. My sister was in the bed. I believe I'm asleep. I hear my father's footsteps walk down the hall, but let's just take it back for a second. If I jump up at 11 years old, an asthmatic kid jumps up. My father was six foot three, 220 pounds probably at that time. A man, you know, if I go into the bedroom when I hear the thuds and I see what had just happened, you've already dug one hole. It's not that hard to make it a little bit bigger to fit two or three bodies in. Um, and that's why I've talked about like when I, when his footsteps and I could see them out of my peripheral vision while I'm sleeping, I could see his feet in the doorway. I was like, don't look up. Like I felt like my mother was saying, do not look up because I feel like if I had gone like this, I wouldn't be sitting here. Cause again, you've already dug the hole, man. It's not hard to throw another body in there. It really isn't. And I know that's a really sad way to look at it, but look, this is my life. And when I, you know, for me, probably the most poignant detail of the Chris Watts case was the fact that he killed those kids. And I don't, I'm not going to get into how that happened, but it was gruesome. And he discusses how their voices haunt him. And I say, good, <laughs> as they should. Um, it, it's, it. It, for me, that's probably what hit home is that that could have been me at any moment. And that's a really sobering thought to sort of take away. Or it could have been my sister too, which f fortunately was not. Um, as I discussed earlier in the program, um, forgiveness. <laughs> uh, 
I know this was a lot to take in and playing the sound bites and things like that. I really hope you guys like that. I, I like doing this. I think it was really cool. I've never done this before in an episode. So for me, I found this really beneficial to show some visuals and some more audio uh, for you guys. But look, um, this is what I want you guys to take away from this. First of all, the families of not only Shanann's family, and I don't know, I can't remember her name, maiden name, but Shanann's family, but also the Watts family. You know, they were in the courtroom. They were there when he was sentenced. And finally, when it went to trial, he just, I don't even think he, I think he just pled guilty and was like, as someone who has been through this, it is not lost on me how difficult it is to reconcile losing someone you love, losing a daughter, losing a sister, losing a daughter-in-law, losing your grandchildren, your nieces, your, your, your nieces. Um, I hope that they've, I mean, it's been what, three, four years. I mean, and we've dealt with a global pandemic and now we're in the middle of a war. I mean, it's, the world is a very scary and dark place sometimes, but on the flip side, and this is what I want you guys to take away from this episode and from, from me doing this show. The world is also an amazing place, an amazing and beautiful place. And I know there are dark things that happen, but I am living proof that it gets better and that you can make a difference in your small little corner of the world. Anyways, I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible. Find us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Discovery Plus, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio. Innocent.